We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm sorry you were not sufficiently impressed with my education. I'm sorry I don't have a robot, so we're even. I think we should just be friends. I don't want friends. I was just being polite. I have no intention of being friends with you. I'm under some pressure right now from my OS class, and if we could just order some food, I think we should be. Okay, you are probably going to be a very successful computer person. You're going to go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. It'll be because you're an asshole. Welcome to episode one of Final Review. My name is Andrew Claudio, and for the very first episode of this show, we're not coming back for 30%. We're coming back for everything. The Social Network, one of the highly regarded movies of the 2010s. We'll see if it's the best movie of the 2010. The runner-up, I think it's safe to say, for best picture in 2010. We're going to decide just how great it actually is. Joining me on this new adventure, the one and only, the editor-in-chief of The Invention of Dreams, Mr. Bernard Ozrowski. Oz, how are you doing today, man? Oh, it is a pleasure to get this endeavor started with you. We've, we've been planning this for a while, and I'm, I'm glad that we are going to hit the ground running with one of the best movies of the last 20 years. Yes, it is. It is indeed. And my first question as we dive into this movie that qualifies for our rankings, 96 on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, eight nominations at the Academy Awards, and then ironically misses our cutoff for box office by $4 million, but did make $225 million worldwide. What do you remember from your first time seeing The Social Network? I remember when The Social Network was announced that there was a part of me that said to myself, I, I don't know why we need this movie to exist. David Fincher had sort of transitioned into uh, you know, more of a prestige phase of his career. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Mark Zuckerberg was still, uh, and it seems strange saying this in 2021, yeah. but he was cool. He was well thought of. There was just a good vibe about Facebook, about Zuckerberg, about sort of upsetting the apple cart of a lot of American tech. And when the movie was announced, it, it, it 
was populated with actors who were either unknown or perhaps not thought of as leading men sorts. And then the trailer hit. <laughs> and the trailer was, uh, at least for film nerds like me, the trailer was almost a, a statement that this is now something that is going to be essential uh, of your viewing for the rest of this year. This idea is potentially worth millions of dollars. Millions? You stole our website. They're saying we stole the Facebook. I know what it said. So did we? A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. You're going to get left behind. It's moving faster what than any of us ever imagined. Get left behind. behind. Let's sue him in federal court. I can't wait to stand over your shoulder and watch you write as a check. If you guys were the inventors of Facebook, Invented Facebook. Is there anything that you need to tell me? Your actions could have permanently destroyed everything I've been working on. We have been working on. Do you like being a joke? Do you want to go back to that? Mark! Real quick, is it your greatest trailer of all time? Your favorite trailer of all time? Who? I know, I just that threw is, that, that out is, That is a really tough question. It's definitely up there. It's yeah. certainly it's certainly in the top handful. I actually, I kind of like some of the teaser trailers that are real teasers that we don't make anymore. I think of like the Armageddon one, which is basically mm-hmm. just the, the ship launching into space, which is great. Um, but aside from those sort of teasers, as full trailers go, social network is it's really, really good. Yeah, and it's, you, up there, I, it's up there for me too, yeah. And how do you not think of, of the cover of Creep, whatever, whatever you even think of this movie, it just sort of it reverberates through your mind because that trailer was such in its way, a, a little piece of art all by itself, you know, also as a marketing carrot. But uh, that movie was just something that was, especially after it hit the festivals, the, the critical reaction started to come out. This was something utterly essential for any film goer that they just had to put it at the top of their list um, as the year wrapped up. This movie is important for me in the sense that I got obviously I think anybody listening to this podcast grew up enjoying movies and liked to go to the movies. And the idea of film and cinema was just a pretentious way of saying, yeah, I like to watch movies. And then for me, seeing this movie in a theater in 2010, and I saw it with a bunch of people that didn't appreciate certain filmmaking elements that I don't think even I appreciated at the time. And I knew there was something special here and I I wanted to understand why. And I think this was the first time and I this word probably should be reserved for specific movies, but I think it applies here. This was a masterpiece. This was a lot of artists at the top of their game going for 81, like the script, the direction, the the acting, the score, the editing, all of the like, even the cinematography, which won't even get really discussed much on this show. I think all of the elements together collectively uh, create this masterpiece soup. And goddamn, the I mean, we'll, we'll get into Sorkin later on, but I think it's the perfect execution of the ping pong dialogue of his script and matched with some all time great performances. What are the elements that you enjoy most about this movie? I think this movie is really interesting because in a way it's both the perfect example of an auteur movie and the perfect example of how pure auteur theory is bullshit. Now, for Mm -hmm. those of you who aren't familiar, auteur theory is basically the idea that movies have one grand author and that would be the director. And certainly it's the case that you see David Fincher's fingerprints all over this movie. It echoes and evolves from stuff that we'd seen throughout the decades of his career beforehand, even dating back to his music video days. But it also only works so well 
And I have some quibbles, but it only <laughs> works as well as it does because it comes together perfectly. You mentioned the cinematography. This movie is absolutely gorgeous. Give us give or take some cinema sins quibbles about CGI that doesn't mm-hmm. quite age perfectly. Uh, it's beautiful to look at. The score is propulsive. And in, in a way, it's sort of game changing because American films hadn't used music in quite the same way this movie does. Each of the actors is so pitch perfectly cast for the roles. There are some actors in this movie who I, I don't think are good elsewhere who are <laughs> absolutely amazing. I mean, Justin Timberlake is. I was going to say, are we going to talk? Are we going to talk about any of them? No. OK. Timberlake. I, look, I, there's a reason he, we're not doing his top five movies on this list today. He, he has he has some skills. He has some virtues as an actor. But mm-hmm. like many actors, his his toolbox is limited. Mm-hmm. And they managed to perfectly tap into the things that he does best. And in a way, I mean, Timberlake was not just he's a perfect example of all this. Timberlake wasn't an actor. I know he had some credits. He was an alpha dog and stuff before this. Nobody on earth thought of Justin Timberlake as an actor going into the social network. But he was such a perfect cog in the machine. It was so well thought out how his skill set, how his talents and even how his sort of meta personality would fit into the Sean Parker role. It's just it's a really beautiful coalescing of all these elements. I think Justin Timberlake's top five movie is what the the rock your body music video like <laughs> like wh- wh- what am I gonna do like trouble with the curve is gonna be top, top. listen I've talked to you I enjoy I enjoy a lot of that movie but uh, it's, it's you know, not you know, uh, it's not gonna be mentioned any we're not gonna be doing an episode on trouble with the curve l- l- let me get let me give him some props for one thing I think it came out earlier this year is a movie called Palmer which uh, it's not Apple bad TV yeah he, he's quite good at that. The movie's a little retrograde and perhaps uh, more on the blind side scale of how we look at social issues these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, he's, he's very effective in it. And he's usually he's, he's best in small doses. He's good in inside Lewin Davis, which he's in for like five minutes. Bingo. I, he, he can be best deployed in a, in a limited way more than if you kind of build your movie around him. Well, to your point about this movie and that the next Michael Jackson disappears into Sean Parker, that when you get to the climactic scene at the end, when Eduardo is losing it and realizing he's been pushed out of the company and Sean Parker's throwing those little jabs in there, it's actually convincing that Eduardo is yelling at Sean and not the lead singer of NSYNC, which is a testament to how great this movie is. And I mean, there's so many different uh, elements of this movie that just I enjoy and I rewatch all the time. And I'm really excited to go through it and actually see how high it will end up ranking on our lists. Um, Quibbles. I actually hesitate to say quibbles because there's not a portion of this movie that I personally would change. Now, you're obviously going to be the are you the Cisco? Are you the Ebert of of this podcast? I, I am almost certainly the Ebert. Uh, OK, no, no, no. Sorry. I'm almost certainly the Cisco. The you're Cisco. The okay. Ebert of, the Ebert. Okay. So uh, then, Gene, tell me <laughs> where where am, what am I missing as far as greatness in this movie? Look, we're we're not going to do the cinema sin stuff and talk about CGI breath. It's not it's not real criticism. Yeah. I, I don't I don't I don't want to. The in 2010 worked for me, though. It's yeah. I, so I will admit then upon rewatch, it's like, oh, that's Army Hammer's face on someone else's body. And speaking of Army Hammer, obviously, throughout the course of this show, we're going to do some 
artists and actors and directors that canceled is not a word I like to use because I think like there's no cancellation. Like we were we discovered your true character and that is actually what happened. It's not that I hit cancel on a DVR. No, I've reassessed who you are as a person. But like the that doesn't bring the movie down for me. I don't think it does for you either. Right. No, look, I, I think we also need to be realistic and look at movies in the time when they came out. For a lot of these things, I, I don't think that we should remove discussion of the social network because Scott Rudin produced it and Kevin Spacey Kevin. produced it. And mm. obviously, Army Hammer has his cannibalism issues. That's real, um, by the way. That is a real <laughs> thing that Oz just said. But uh, look, I, I I get it. If it makes it hard for you to watch this movie, knowing that Scott Rudin is a, is a cruel, mean person of knowing that Kevin Spacey is a sexual predator makes it difficult for you to watch this movie. I, I respect that. I understand it. I, I, but we're not going to dedicate our time to, you know, talking about the context of the producers or anything like that, or even getting into the details of army hammer. We're going to focus on, on the work on screen. But if, if, if that doesn't work for you, I understand. Uh, but that's our focus here. So then what are your quibbles with this movie? So look, leaving aside Sorkin's, masturbatory cameo in this movie which is okay. probably the, the single most false note of any performance in this thing mm -hmm. sorkin has a long history of underwriting or poorly writing women mm -hmm. and the use of two of the characters in this movie the rooney mara character and the rashida jones character both mm. badly fall under that umbrella for me Obviously, this is a podcast. We're talking about the whole movie. There's going to be spoilers. The Rashida Jones scene at the end of the movie where she tells him, oh, he's not an asshole. He just tries so hard to be one. It's it's almost laughable. It almost undercuts everything that's happened for the prior for the prior two hours. And, and it's because it's juxtaposed with the Rooney Mara scene where Sorkin has evidently distilled down all of Zuckerberg's psyche, demystified it in such a way that, you know, his, his rosebud is the girl that broke up with him at the bar at the beginning of the movie. And mm -hmm. it just, in a way, it almost cheapens what is otherwise such a complex, deep portrayal by Eisenberg uh, of someone who is so deeply inscrutable and difficult to sort of comprehend in real life. Those characters just don't work. And I, I think they exist purely as devices it's really the same thing with the uh, andrew garfield's girlfriend in this That's what i was gonna say the i don't have an issue as much with the uh, rooney marrow or the rashida jones characters it's the brenda song character that i guess the whole point is just to show this is how relationships are going to work going forward we're going to know where our significant others are at all times or what they think of us based on their facebook status but her whole point of the movie is just to be an object which can be perceived as a uh, disrespectful, which I can understand. Hey, look, I, I think even the Dakota Johnson role is really the same thing. I, I, mm. I don't I don't think women exist in this movie for any role other than to be talked at by men. And that, I don't think that invalidates the movie, but I think right. it's a fair criticism because our, our goal here isn't to say the social network's a bad movie or anything right. like that. It's great. We wouldn't be wasting our time talking about it here if we didn't think it had immense value, but we're quibbling. And we're talking about the things that separate, you know, what each of our personal greatest movie of all time might be versus something that is, you know, a little bit further down the scale. And, you know, my 
issues with the Sorkin script, my issues with how Sorkin writes women definitely hold this back for me from the perfection that other folks see. That Sorkin issue for me is much more prevalent in the newsroom, which otherwise is a very enjoyable show that has his uh, classic dialogue. But I just like that. I think it peaks in its opening scene and then it's all downhill from there. Um, Regardless, I still think there is a lot to this movie and we'll we'll talk about its, its accuracy and how much it is adapted from the accident of billionaires book and how much true to the story it actually is um, throughout this pod. But I still go back to the highs of walking out of the theater and realizing I had seen something great, which is only a feeling I've had maybe a dozen times in my life. And this is probably one of the first ones. And I'm interested to see where it lands on our lists. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was your father's lawyer? This is in-house counsel. He's going to look at all this, and if he thinks it's appropriate, he'll send a cease and desist letter. What's that going to do? What, do you want to hire an IP lawyer and sue him? No, I want to hire the Sopranos to beat the shit out of him with a hammer. We don't even have to do that. That's right. We can do that ourselves. I'm 6'5", 220, and there's two of me. Are you ready to do the final review of The Social Network, Oz? Let's do it. All right, let's do it. First and foremost, uh, speaking of auteur theory, is The Social Network a top five David Fincher film? Now, you said at the top, that he had morphed into the critical portion of his career, his uh, the prestige portion of his career. So what does that mean? So Fincher is a fellow who, like a lot of directors who broke through in the 90s, uh, came from a music video background. It's, you know, Michael Bay, Spike Jones, Michelle Gondry, just fo- folks who coming from that background and success in that universe tend to have just an extremely strong visual style. And mm-hmm. Fincher was known for you know, award-winning work with the Rolling Stones and Madonna, among others. And his transition into the studio system was the you know, legendarily difficult to make Alien 3. He wanted his name taken off of it. The, it's not a good movie. And it's not a good movie because he you know, didn't quite know exactly what he was yet as a filmmaker. It was his first time. And the studio had things they wanted from a big franchise movie. And there was a clash. There was a clash of personalities, a clash of ideas. But you can see, especially in the work print cut, which exists on you know, DVD box sets and such, you could see the, the early things that define him as a filmmaker. You could see why this you know, kind of dopey 
franchise sequel draws him in to some extent because it's really this dark, miserable jail movie. There's all sorts of, you know, violence. It really tones down the, the fun of the James Cameron second movie in the series to a much darker, almost, you know, the, the holes of the human psyche sort of worldview, which will come to define his filmmaking over I, the next few years. I take it we will not be doing Alien 3 I, on this podcast. I, I, it doesn't I, qualify. So. Mer- mercifully, I don't think it qualifies because I'm not Damn. sure I can talk about that for an hour <laughs> and a half. But like he, he, he achieved his success through a series of good movies that were very edgy mm-hmm. and are sort of the pantheon of college dorm room movies for folks of a certain age. I'm 36 years old. And, and for me, I, I, how many dorm rooms of people my age had a, a seven poster or a fight club mm-hmm. poster, the Brad Pitt soap uh, poster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To a lesser extent, the game and panic room fit that same sort of filmmaking ethos, this sort of roguish um, place among filmmakers, uh, But on the heels of that success, Fincher began striving for something a little more mainstream, a little more not necessarily critic approved because all of his movies have done well with critics, but something that was perhaps more industry approved. And that brought him to Zodiac. Uh, Zodiac is one of my favorite movies, and I suspect we'll be talking about it momentarily. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's a three hour movie about a couple guys obsessing over a serial killer and it essentially ruining their lives over decades that they they can't catch him. It, it is not a mainstream popcorn movie. It's something deep and heavy and dark. And from there, he kind of made his least venturey movie, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which almost feels in a way. And of course, it's still weird and dark and it's beautiful to look at and it has a lot of his jokes. It's this one of his movies that most feels like, please, can I have an Academy Award? And, and it was from that place that we get to the social network. And it was almost a crossroads in his career as the sort of more shock jock guy from early on going to be replaced by this new person who's veering into critical hosannas. Or are we looking at a or are we looking at a, a really unique filmmaker? And I think the social network shows that he transitioned in a correct way yeah fincher remains one of my favorite directors while acknowledging that i mean even with mank like the view of human instinct is is going to be featured throughout this and as much as some movies like to have happy endings and and be a little more generous to to human instinct he's going to be a little more honest about the more likely scenario is going to be at the end of this. And uh, you've mentioned that some of his directional choices in this movie, you're not a fan of though. Do you have any examples? I I think in, in this film, I I actually, I I have quibbles with his career elsewhere here. I I think here he's good. I think here he's remarkable in a lot of ways. Look, there, there are parts of this movie that are almost show offish where he's flexing a little bit as a director, obviously the, the crew regatta scene. The whole, Royal Henley regatta in England, right? That's what it's yeah, called. I, I will defer to you on that. Yeah. But that, that scene is fucking awesome. Yes. It has nothing really to do with it's rowing a boat. It's, and it, it seems just, like game yeah. seven of the world series. Yeah. Yes. It's just, it's just an incredible filmmaking flex. It's him taking like a moment to show just how fucking good he is. I, there are, of course, some overall broad thematic things that tie into the Winklevoss motivations and all that come through that. But it's it's a flex. It's a guy showing 
this is how well I can make movies. Mm -hmm. And there's, I I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but you know, there are, there are some slight masturbatory elements to, to that, but look, he, he's, he's great here. I I think he's largely at the top of his game um, from a skill set perspective and from a bringing all the parts together. I I talked about our tour theory before, and I I think the most important thing a, a great director can do isn't necessarily you know, where they put the camera and all that sort of stuff. It's to manage all the pieces to help them coalesce into the best thing they can be. Bingo. And I mean, you'll hear it throughout this pod that Sorkin's made better because of Fincher. Fincher's made better because of Sorkin. Both of them are made better because of the actors that are giving these performances and these performances are made better by the people getting them to give them. And I think Fincher has a lot to do with that. Your top five David Fincher films are uh, starting from the starting from the top here. And I've spoiled this a little bit. My number yeah. my, num- my number one Fincher movie is Zodiac. We have the same number one is Zodiac. Zodiac. I need to be in a mood to see it. And I don't think did he get nominated for an Oscar? It may have gotten some technical. Maybe like a I don't think it's going to qualify. Like I think photography or something. I, I think it's going to qualify for our show is the point. So I think the unfortunate point is that we may uh, for other Fincher films bring up Zodiac a lot, but it's because it's as someone who loves like was a journalism major in college and then loves like seeing that procedural process play out. Seeing what what Jake Gyllenhaal has to go through and then Mark Ruffalo has to go through and fuck what Robert Downey Jr. has to go through in that movie. All before the MCU. Yeah. Like that's a, <laughs> I just realized that's the Hulk Mysterio and Iron Man. Holy shit. Um, no wonder they left the experience of that movie and said, you know what? I'm going to movies that make money. I'm never going through this again. Um, Zodiac, I, I find it for streaming if you've never have. It's you, what's probably pitched to you as the Zodiac killer movie actually is more of a movie about obsession and well worth the runtime in my opinion. So oh, Zodiac's yeah. your number one. Yep. My, my number two is our, our baby of the day and that's the social network. Same. So we're two for two, two for two. That's easy. Uh, my number three. And I, I think we may match here again. My number three is seven. So my number four is seven. Ah, close, close. What's your three? What's your three? number three is Gone Girl, a movie okay. that qualifies for the show. I don't know if we're ever going to we're not going to do it recently or anytime soon, I should say. But as far as a whodunit goes, it's up there. And like the twist happening in the middle of the movie, I used to joke around and I will admit my girlfriend loves the book, loves the movie and reacted appropriately to the third third act of that movie. And I won't say it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but um, if at any point she says, oh, I see her point of view, run is all <laughs> I'm going to say. So I just th- that's my two cents on Gone Girl. I, I really enjoy that movie, though. See, I think my wife came to that point of view long after we were married. Uh, so. Okay. <laughs> so it took it took a while for you to become that. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like, you know what? Now I get it. Uh, yeah. So your, um, number, your number four is what? My number four is Gone Girl. So we're okay. we're we're close. I mean, I, 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 honestly, I don't I don't think we're really off the beaten path on the consensus on on Fincher here. I think those are largely thought of as his top four movies. Mm-hmm. 
Number five, I know we're going to be different on because I know how you feel about my number five. I, I, yeah, we are. We are. I suspect going to differ here. I thought long and hard about Mank. I liked Mank very much when I saw it. You and I once did like a two and a half hour podcast mm-hmm. talking about Mank. And then nobody talked about it ever again. <laughs> we were the last. We were the literal last word on Mank because no one, everyone was done with yeah. it. And I, I, I have to say the idea of turning on Mank when, when I was preparing for this felt like homework to me mm-hmm. and not in a I need to be in the right mood or headspace way that Zodiac does, it felt like, oh, this, this is a job. And that is pretty damning and pushed it down for me. So I'm going to put, and uh, maybe I like this movie more than anyone else. I'm going to put the girl with the dragon tattoo in mm-hmm. my fifth spot. I don't think it's controversial to say that. I think a lot, there is a, a hive for that movie. Um, I need to revisit it. I think I've seen it once or twice. And the second time I think I caught it at a certain point, I was like, oh, I'm in for the rest of this movie. Why not? My number five is Fight Club. And I know how you feel about Fight Club. I'm curious if we ever do a Fight Club episode and I'll save more thoughts for that, I think. Yeah, I, I won't I won't delve deep into my complaints about Fight mm-hmm. Club. I, I, I'm not even sure it's a, a fair criticism to say that the the culture that's arisen of people who have brutally misread the movie is I don't think that's I don't think that's David Fincher's fault that right. a lot of people took this in a far more literal way than it was ever intended, either in book or cinematic form. But um, look, I, I think it's a, I actually think it's a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. I, I just I don't think his filmmaking had matured as much as it would later. And I think it relies a little too much on the gimmick and it just doesn't feel as sort of thematically satisfying or character satisfying for me as a lot of his other work does. The letter says we could face legal action. No, it says I could face legal action. This is from a lawyer, Mark. They must feel they have some grounds. The lawyer is their father's house counsel. Do they have grounds? The grounds are our thing is cool and popular and Harvard connection is lame. Wardo, I didn't use any of their code. I promise I didn't use anything. Look, a guy who builds a nice chair doesn't owe money to everyone who ever has built a chair, okay? They came to me with an idea. I had a better one. Why didn't you show me this letter? I didn't think it was a big deal. Now, the second one, we go into acting. Is The Social Network a top five Jesse Eisenberg film? I, how do we even talk about Jesse Eisenberg? I, 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 think, I know how I how? thought about this. I know how we talk about Jesse. How Eisenberg. do we do it? And the way we talk about him is we say that Jesse Eisenberg is a really, really good indie actor. Mm-hmm. He has a skill set that works well for that style of filmmaking. And he has a skill set that repeatedly does not work very well for mainstream studio filmmaking. He, he's very frequently the square peg in a round hole of parts because look, the guy was fantastic in this movie. Obviously, not a spoiler to say he's going to be on my list in a few seconds. Uh, he's fantastic in this movie. Act, best actor nominee for it, deservedly. Those people then go on to be cast in a whole bunch of Hollywood stuff. That's the way the industry works. That's why we have, you know, Rami Malek as a Bond villain now, and he's mm-hmm. better as a character actor. Um, it's the same sort of thing you, you you get to that height and all of a sudden you're doing uh, american ultra or 30 minutes or less and now you see me not like not yeah. now you see me exactly Look, yeah. not 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 every actor chooses to live a life of artistic purity it's also a job and there's a sort of old ethos one for them one for me where you do a studio movie and then you do sort of an art house movie. Actually, the comic book movies are great because it lets lots of these guys go get paid and get constant residuals. And then they go do weird shit on on their own time. But I I just think that, you know, look, even Daniel Day-Lewis did that god-awful Rob Marshall movie. Not everyone picks right each Mm. time. But um, look, he wants to get paid sometimes in studio stuff. He's just a 
wonderful actor in independent films who is they just don't know how to use him in most studio pictures. So I agree with every single thing you said. As far as this movie goes, I think it's evident in how Zuckerberg himself at least tried for the next six years after this movie to change his perception Um and that like, I'm not an asshole. I'm like the Rashida Jones line. I'm not trying to be an asshole. I'm not like, I'm a family guy. I, this movie and its inaccuracies portrayed me as, as devious and uh, cunning. And I, I, I just, I was really smart. I had some friends that knew how to do smart things and we built something really cool and I want to run for president. And then 2016 came around <laughs> and that went out the window. Um, but I think it's a testament to Eisenberg's performance that this is who Mark Zuckerberg is to so many people. And at least who Mark Zuckerberg was in college as Facebook was being created. Um, the performance is, I think it's one of the best of the decade, let alone the best of his career. I'll just, I'll jump right in for top five Jesse Eisenberg performances. This was an easy number one for me. How about you? Easy number one for me as well. Okay. The rest of your list is what? Number two. Number two, uh, I think we agree here, is the squid and the whale. Mm-hmm. Easily. Number three here is... Hey, have you been, real quick, have you been to that museum recently? Uh, it's a science museum, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, no, I wish I got my vaccine there, but... Um, <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's going to be a cool place to, oh, get, okay. to get vaccinated. But, I wanted uh, to get vaccinated at City Field, because then... Oh, see? That everyone has a know, place they want Everybody to has a place. Yet I went to Walgreens. In <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, number three is Adventureland. Okay. Which is sort of a very underrated or maybe I, properly rated coming of age, you know, summer, summer, not even adventure movie, summer like dick around movie. <laughs> that's with Kristen Stewart, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've never seen it. And I think oh. it would replace my number five if I saw it. But it's, we'll, it's we'll get to good. it in a second. Okay. They, they basically, you know, hang out at a shitty little amusement park for a summer. It's kind of like a. Mm-hmm. It, it has a feel of something like, I don't know, everybody wants some or, or, you know, kind of that, that, that sort of stoner fun vibe. It's just, a, it's a good, solid, solid movie. He's very good in it. Uh, nobody has seen this movie, but my number four is the art of self-defense. I know I've you've seen, seen it, it and it's my number three and it's really good. <laughs> it's a really good movie about this, you know, this kind of doofus guy who becomes obsessed with karate and sort of leveling up in karate and it uh, takes him to a darker place, but so you're underselling it. So he, I am, gets, maybe I, he, he gets jumped, right? Mm-hmm. That's what happens. And then he thinks that the, he's like a really awkward dude. That's probably in his late twenties, early thirties. So his solution is to go take karate classes and the obsession of, I mean, I think the ending is a little un, not, not loyal to real life, but I think it, it's a, a very fascinating performance of someone that age trying to figure out how to change their life at a certain point where changing your life isn't always possible. And he's doing his best to do so. I art of self-defense. I think it's on Hulu. Seek it out if you can. Um, so those are four movies the, Oh, you said Adventureland and Adventure then our self-defense. OK, so I got I got one more to go. I, okay. I thought I thought about Holy Rollers, where he plays an Orthodox Jewish drug dealer, which is pretty good. Um, Roger Dodger. He's much younger. I think he's only like 16 in that movie, but he he's basically learning to pick up girls from his mm-hmm. sleazy uncle. He's good in that. But let, let's have a little fun with the last one. And I know I pissed all over the Hollywood stuff. But Zombieland is fun. He's funny in it. It, it, it works with his sort of 
sorry to say this, his Woody Allen energy mm-hmm. that he has sometimes the sort of nebbishness that he can, that he could portray works well in the context of a zombie comedy. So I'm, I'm putting zombie land in my number five spot. Shout out Bill Murray. Um, zombie land is my number four, my number five. I admit I am not a fan of this director. I'm not a fan of these movies and the olive branch that I'm about to extend is not uh, a collective knowledge branch on behalf of the final review team. I will just say that in my quest for understanding of the release, the Snyder cut crew, um, which I will admit, like I've done a lot of growing over the last couple of years. Oz. I don't like to just dismiss a movie that a lot of people like as they're stupid. I'm more of a like, let people enjoy things. If this worked for you, great and the snyder cut was like i like i like the original (laughs) i like the original daredevil i understand but i also recognize that the original daredevil is a piece of shit okay back to you um i don't hate batman v superman dawn of justice the ultimate edition i actually think up until the cave troll shows up it is (laughs) a very enjoyable superhero movie and if Warner Brothers had waited and built up their universe and then had the credibility to release a rated R three hour superhero movie, we would regard it as much higher than it was shit on originally because they rushed it, didn't build up their universe. And the theatrical version is a mess and makes no sense, specifically with Eisenberg's Lex Luthor. It's just like, why is he doing this? And then he, so you want Batman to steal the kryptonite, but two minutes ago you didn't. And so, so much of that movie makes no sense. Theatrically, his performance in the theatrical version, I don't hate. And given that I haven't seen Adventureland, I will extend the olive branch to shout out to Spencer Perlman, friend of the pod who loves like swears by Zack Snyder. Um, who very much enjoys this movie. And I admit, I enjoy it too. Un- I, again, until the doomsday character shows up and it's like, all right, this is, this is now not something I want to watch anymore. I, I will defend at least the first two, two and a half hours of that movie. Uh, and it's specifically the Eisenberg performance. That is a long way of saying that Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, the ultimate edition is my number five for Jesse Eisenberg. I, We'll just very briefly respond and say that a lot of actors have played Lex Luthor over the years. Um, Gene Hackman, Mm -hmm. Kevin Spacey, Michael Rosenbaum, uh, Rain Wilson in some of the cartoons, I Mm -hmm. believe. Clancy Brown has played him many times. Uh, He's your least John, favorite. <laughs> John Cryer from Two and a Half Men plays him on Supergirl. And I would take any of those Lex Luthors over. Oh, Kevin Spacey. I would take you any said of Spacey. those. You said oh, I said Spacey. Spacey. Yeah, I would yeah. take any of those Lex Luthors over Jesse Eisenberg's. And I don't. I, I can't they wrote say that like movie, you're wrong. And they wrote yeah. that movie for Brian Cranston, who did not want to do it. Right. So and then yeah. just plugged in Jesse Eisenberg, which is just weird as fuck, no matter how you how you slice it. Okay. Uh, listen, I I can't even say you're wrong. I'm just saying it works for me until it doesn't. And then like we'll see what happens if they actually decide to do more Snyder movies. Okay. Is the social network a top what? Oh, no, no more you're Snyder. shaking your face of no more no. Snyder movies. Listen, no. 
I'm just I'm telling you, they're gonna happen. Whether no, they he's happy with Netflix, he's gonna, I know gonna he give him 150 is, million dollars but... to go do whatever he wants each time. So if HBO decides we'll give you 200 million dollars. <laughs> anyway, next on the list is the social network of top five Andrew Garfield film. Um is he similar to Eisenberg in that the smaller the better? Uh that it's it's a fair concern. I mean, his he also just doesn't do um Hollywood studio movies he's done the spider-man movies and that's really about it most of his sort of more mainstream stuff is you know like a bbc style production like breathe um so i I think he he stays a little more off the grid he took that sweet superhero paycheck and then has and he's definitely not in spider-man at christmas (laughs) um took those superhero paychecks to be able to go do whatever he wants with the with the rest of his time and i think that he uh I think he's a better actor, a more versatile actor than Jesse Eisenberg. And I, I, I think his his role selection suggests someone who who himself is aiming for greatness in his career. And frankly, he, he's worked with so many special, special directors that it speaks to how well he's thought of throughout the industry. Yeah, my top three for him are easily the three best directors he's worked with. And I think... The performance of Eduardo, it makes a guy that currently is not allowed in the country very sympathetic. You know, just do your research if you want to. Just Eduardo Saverin and like may have been screwed out of millions, billions of dollars in the Facebook, but uh, may also not ever come back to America. Like just (laughs) do your research is all I'm going to say. And what he creates is this version of a character and like this is very simple and like the bare minimum i'm giving people like him credit for but when you have such a thick accent in real life and then you're somebody completely different in a movie and i never pick it up like i just quite literally yesterday been season four of the wire and my issue with that show, as much as I, I sang the praises on the most recent Nick's Film School podcast of season four and that show and its importance, my quibble, my one percent that I don't like is the McNulty character, because I pick up that he is not from Baltimore. Every time Dominic West tries to speak like somebody from Baltimore, one, and one might suggest that Idris Elba is not from Baltimore. Either. I actually think Elba's Elba better, better than McNulty, better but... than McNulty, for sure. Stringer Bell. <laughs> because throughout his career, he's been able to hide it. I think Sherbell's significantly better, I think, than McNulty. Anyway, um, being able to hide your accents, your natural accent well, is incredible when I see it, especially when I see you in real life. Daniel Kaluuya, I think, is the best example of this or one of the better examples of this. Kate Winslet also, although there are moments in Mare of East Town where it's like, all right, that could have used a couple of takes. Um, regardless, Andrew Garfield in this movie disappears into the Eduardo character. And, uh, you know, the, the the franchise stuff, he's not my favorite Spider-Man, although, like you said, he's going to be in a Spider-Man movie in the not-too-distant future. Similar to Eisenberg, when I think of Andrew Garfield, Eduardo's one of the top characters I think of. You know, the, the in-memoriam argument of when we see him go, who's the character is going to pop up? I, at least for me, it's going to be Eduardo, and it's why the social network I have as my number one in Andrew Garfield movies. How about you? I have a social network at number four. Okay. And it's not any, I don't really disagree with anything you've said. It's, it's obviously his most iconic 
performance at this point, unless there's some, you know, MCU renaissance coming in the future. <laughs> um, it's it's really I, 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 he's fantastic in it. He is, as you've said, he's the beating heart of this movie, um, even though the real guy is uh, uh, not great. Um, he's really the beating heart of this movie. He makes it work. He's the in for the audience. And that is a, a hard role to actually do something with and to actually elevate a lot of times you you get you with female characters, you get the criticism of a Mary Sue character. And he's a could be in a lesser film, the male equivalent of a Mary Sue character, just sort of this, you know, empty, vacuous person drawn into the world of this bigger character. Uh, but he's not that he mm. elevates this. He brings humanity to it. There's a way he he could get lost in it, like James McAvoy next to Forrest Whitaker in The Last King of Scotland. And it just doesn't happen here because he he brings so much humanity to it. But he is, unfortunately, fourth place for me only because I just think he's better in some other places. So we're going to go five to one here because I, I I'm very curious what you have higher than this. So your five is what? So I I, I actually think he's uh, the Spider-Man movies are the amazing Spider-Man movies are not great. Uh-huh. I actually think he's good in them. I think that his chemistry with Emma Stone is perhaps the best. Mm-hmm. romantic spark in any of the recent superhero movies. You got to go back to like Kidder and Reeve to get mm-hmm. like real chemistry between the actors because they're all, I know this is like a film Twitter thing. Now they're also asexualized that to have any real heat between the performers kind of, kind of matters to me. And it's a little, it makes it a little more exciting and he has more fun as Spider-Man than like Tobey Maguire does, but that's also plotting. And they do the sort of mopey hang up the robe stuff for, for the Raimi trilogy, but well, you're speaking to like real life gets brought into those movies because he was dating Emma Stone at the time of those movies. So their chemistry is great. I will say he is 27 playing a 17 year old in one of those movies. And he does not look 17. It's even, and I, they exacerbate it too. Cause then they pair him with Dane DeHaan, who's like mm-hmm. his childhood best friend. And the second one, who I know is like the same age, but looks like he's about 14 can pass for like Holland at least looks like he's in high school and like Zendaya. I'm worried is going to keep doing more adult projects that take me out of her (laughs) MJ character, but at least I'm able to say, yeah, okay, you're, you're a a senior in high school. It passes. Garfield goes from inventing Facebook to a junior in high school. And like Emma Stone's giving that valedictorian speech. Like we're, we have the rest of our lives ahead of us. Like, wait, you were you're supposed to be 16 a year ago. What are we doing here? <laughs> so I just poorly. I, they should have just made like this is an older Spider-Man that's out of college. I, I can't just ignore it to that extent, at least. At least it doesn't work for yeah, me. That's fair. Yeah. All right. So uh, your list. Lo- long winded way of getting to my number five, which is Hacksaw Ridge, which okay. I, I know it's. Mel Gibson is a bad guy. But, My number uh, three, though. Yes. He, Garfield is great mm. in this movie. He he brings a sort of gravity. Um, he, he's a medic, a World War II medic in it and um, a, a pacifist. And, and uh, he really uh, he elevates something that is for a long stretch of the movie, him carrying people off of a battlefield and just his his subtle facial acting, his physicality. He's just he's really, really good in this movie. He's totally immersed in it. I, I I think he's great in Hacksaw Ridge. That main character he plays is from Lynchburg, Virginia, where I went to college. And 
my senior year, while I still had a good relationship with my alma mater, uh, Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn did the tour because they were scouting locations. And I got to meet Mr. Gibson and Mr. Vaughn for a few minutes. And it was a cool experience at the time. And then they spoke at commencements and it was really cool. And then, you know, the rest of the last five years have happened. And now it's, it's tough for me to acknowledge cool experiences from my alma mater. All that to say, <laughs> Axel Ridge hits home because I know the area he grew up in. To think back of, oh, you you lived over here. I know that area. I lived around the corner from that area. That is pretty cool. Um, it's my number three as well. Uh, while acknowledging the piece of shit Mel Gibson is, I'm able to appreciate the job he did and the performance he got of Garfield in that movie. Uh, your number four is The Social Network. Your number three. Uh, my number three is Silence. My number two. Martin Scorsese's opus about Jesuit priests apostatizing or not. Uh, in feudal Japan, and it is this is very low on the Scorsese rankings a lot, but I, I'm with you. I love this movie. I, I think this is a, an outright masterpiece. I think it's fantastic. Uh, it is also deeply uncommercial. It is three hours of of mostly Andrew Garfield, but also Adam Driver struggling with their sort of philosophy of life and faith and if they make the easy choice to give up on their faith uh, to receive better treatment from their Japanese captors or not. And it is, it's just not, it's not for everyone. It's not a movie that I'm going to sit here and say, go out there and watch everybody because especially if you don't have, uh, I was raised very Catholic. Now I'm Mm -hmm. a passionate atheist, but if you don't have the, the background in faith and religion, I'm not sure that this movie can resonate to you because it's very Spartan, it's very sparse, and it doesn't it doesn't really teach you anything along the it doesn't teach you what's happening or anything like that. You you need to come in with some knowledge of the world and spirituality for it to properly resonate. But I, I think Garfield is is absolutely amazing here. And like Hacksaw Ridge, it's a it's a brilliant physical and transformative physical performance without having to resort to the gimmickry of weight cutting and things like that, that we'll perhaps talk about in future episodes. As far as uh, three hour Scorsese movies go, this is not toward the top of some of the other ones, but um, similar to what you said of having a religious background, uh, I still have a lot of religious principles that I hold, but this movie over time is also, I think, become more important in in a lot of people's walks. So um, I have it at number two which means you're two and number. I'll just say my number. I think you're going to say my number five. The only movie we haven't said is my four and five. So you're two and one or what? So my number two is uh, my two and one are movies that just nobody has seen, particularly Mm -hmm. my number one. But my my number two is Never Let Me Go. My number five, which uh, if you haven't seen it, this one you actually should see. It's uh, extraordinarily well acted love story. <laughs> I love uh, what you're saying I, you should see my number two. My number one, though. <laughs> uh, good, good luck finding it. But my okay. my, my number two. Uh, look, never let me go. It's it's a sci-fi love story thing, and frequently those don't work, and they never draw audiences. But it's about. And I think this is spoiled by the trailer, so I'm not spoiling anything. It's about clones who are raised to serve as organ harvesting things for rich people uh, who fall in love with one another. And he's just Garfield. He's wonderful chemistry with Carrie Mulligan, who's the female lead and one of my personal favorite actresses these days. Uh, It's just it's it's very good. It's very moving. It's very human work, not 
all that dissimilar from what we're saying about his performance in the social network. Mm-hmm. I agree hundred percent. I think it's available to stream if you want to seek it out. Um, that one, it definitely is my next one. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> so let me just say this in 20, uh, 2012, 20, no, 2014, the big short came out, right? Or was it 2015? I think it's 15, but okay. Well, it's the big short came out and it was a commentary on the housing crisis and more specifically the collapse. Um, that's one perspective, the business, the Wall Street perspective and how they experienced the collapse of the housing market in 2008. There's another movie called 99 Homes starring Andrew Garfield and Michael Shannon that shows the much more personal effect of the people that were screwed over by the housing collapse and how they were affected. That I think is just as disturbing as uh, the big short tends to make the story. Um both never let me go in 99 homes. I think as far as uh, Garfield performances are my happy place for him. Um, so I, I, that's my list, at least social network being my number one. What the hell do you have as his number one? If it's not anything we've said so far. <laughs> so, so my number one is a, uh, it is the first part of a triptych of British BBC period dramas called Red Riding in the Year of Our Lord, 1974, which from the look on no your face, colon, no dash, just uh, Red Riding. There's maybe I, I, a think, colon. I think I think there might be a colon after Red Riding. There's three of them. But um, look, it, it's a movie about a, uh, a young reporter <laughs> who is who <laughs> investigates, who ends up investigating a, a series of crimes. And it it, it start it. It, there's a whole interplay of politics of of British politics in the 70s, um, but in effect, it has to do with the a, a series of missing schoolgirls. And maybe I have a type here because this is this is a lot like Zodiac in a lot of thematic ways. But for me, at least, it was the movie that put Andrew Garfield on my radar. Actually, Rebecca Hall on my radar too, and Sean Bean is in it. So there's a lot of people mm-hmm. that you know now. So it's worth it's worth finding. But it's kind of cool when you see a movie and you see an actor in it and you go to yourself, this guy is really fucking good. I I'm putting a pin in it. I'm going to do that little heart like the star like thing on IMDb Uh and follow what this what this guy does. And for me, Red Riding was what put Andrew Garfield as as a name I need to follow on my radar. It's it's a dark movie. He's very good, very tortured in it. I just, I I think his role in that movie would fit perfectly as a fourth character in Zodiac if, if they wanted to go that way, but it's, it's really, really good stuff. Uh, There is a colon after red riding. Oh, perfect. And it's available to stream right now on Amazon prime. So if Oz sold you on red riding in the year of our Lord, 1974, which I'll check it out. Maybe probably not. (laughs) Um, And there that's how you can check it out whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance that's why i'm excited that unified healing is sponsoring this podcast unified healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by energy enhancement system or ee system if you haven't heard of the ee system you'll want to listen up this technology promotes wellness deep relaxation purification and rejuvenation at hundreds of locations across the globe 
Access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Mr. Zuckerberg, do I have your full attention? No. Do you think I deserve it? What? Do you think I deserve your full attention? I had to swear an oath before we began this deposition, and I don't want to perjure myself, so I have a legal obligation to say no. Okay, no. You don't think I deserve your attention? I think if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have a right to give it a try, but there's no requirement that I enjoy sitting here listening to people lie. You have part of my attention. You have the minimum amount. The rest of my attention is back at the offices of Facebook, where my colleagues and I are doing things that no one in this room, including and especially your clients, are intellectually or creatively capable of doing. Did I adequately answer your condescending question? Next, it's time to get into the script. Is The Social Network a top five Aaron Sorkin film? Now, specifically film, we stayed away from TV because I think we'd have The West Wing in here toward the top or close to the top. Is that... A fair I, assumption or where would you have it? To- totally agree. I would have the West Wing at the top, but also TV writing. It's with writers. Yeah. Rooms, it's just not the same. And I know one person gets credit for each episode, but it's just not the same animal as film writing. And I think it's just cleaner to focus on films or made for TV films like Red mm-hmm. Riding uh, than it is to, you know, integrate TV shows. Now, Sorkin being uh, now as we switch to his cinematic work, I mean, there are a few screenwriters that, you know, like, oh, this is a Sorkin script. It's going to be fast. Everybody's going to be smart, know exactly what to say. I actually think because there's a point to this, that when we go through our five, we should say those first. And I think it'll show something about Sorkin. I think you'll agree with me on. So your top five Sorkin films are what? Uh, Five to one. uh, Five is Moneyball. We'll go quickly through these because they're... uh, I think there's a more commonality of discussion mm-hmm. than each individually. Five is Moneyball. Four is Steve Jobs. Three is the American president. Two is the social network for me. And my number one is A Few Good Men. Okay. Exact same five in a different order. I have the social network one. I have um, A Few Good Men two, American president three, Moneyball four, and Steve Jobs five. All five movies, now that he's started to direct, all five of these movies um, he didn't, he wasn't the director for, and I think it shows the strengths of Sorkin that when he is just in charge of the script and he has somebody similar to how, like when we do a Tarantino movie, I'm going to praise Tarantino, the screenwriter, but not necessarily praise Tarantino, the director. Cause you'll think every single line of dialogue I've written is perfect. None of it can go. And Sorkin being matched with uh fincher here i think it's just it's the the kobe finding his shack the lebron finding his d wade and it's why this movie is great and it, it's why when you see other in the future why i think you and i don't respond to some of the movies he also directs i, I think you 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 hit it perfectly on the head there because for me sorkin is a a deeply optimistic 
writer. He, I, I've heard him say that he writes the way he wishes people spoke and he writes it in an aspirational way. And frankly, all, all of his stories tend to have happy endings mm-hmm. and tend to have a sort of, you know, uplifting beat to them, but not just on TV, but in film, even on the stage, uh, all of his writing tends to end on a happier note. But um, what I think is important here is we've spent a lot of time discussing David Fincher's darkness mm-hmm. and sort of deeply cynical view of humanity and self-interest. And I think it's the interplay of Sorkin's sort of aspirational qualities with Fincher's darker, more cynical view of the world that elevates both of their that elevates both of their work here. Agreed. And I just the reason I had it at number one of the movies he's been a part of. The only thing close is the the interrogation of Nicholson and a few good men. Um, There are like seven scenes like that in this movie where I'll go seek them out on YouTube. And just if you wanted if you were the inventors of Facebook, you'd have invented Facebook. The entire (laughs) ending of this movie with uh, I'm not coming back for 30 percent. I'm coming back for everything. Sorry, my prod is at the cleaners. Every single important climactic scene in this movie is insanely well done. And a lot of that is, is attributed to Sorkin. Um, I haven't even said like I was going to say, what's your what's your order for? Oh, for the oh, for the, them. Uh, wow. Um, you talking about movies or Sorkin? No, no, no. Your sort your Sorkin order. What's your what's your your top five? Oh, I said it. The Social Network, A Few Good Men, American President, Moneyball and Steve Jobs. OK, so you you all right. So you it's the Steve same Jobs. movies, just not the same well, with different Steve order. Jobs and Moneyball. Okay. Yeah. Um, Moneyball. I one day we'll do baseball movies and you'll see how high I have money. Well, anyway, my only look, I, I have a pure nostalgia thing here. I can remember where I sat in the theater with my parents. It, it was the very front row on the far right side. So as shitty a seat as you can get. Little kid me uh, was absolutely mind blown by a few good men. Uh, I think I was seven when I saw it. It, it it resonated with me so much that I quite literally have a baseball bat that I carry around my uh, okay. office right now. Hopefully better than hopefully better <laughs> so, than Tom Cruise carries it in that movie. Well, that, that I hope so, too. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I, I it, it's it's a movie that stuck with me. It's a movie that's important to me. It is unbelievably rewatchable. I, I can't really quibble with someone who says the social networks a better screenplay because it is certainly in a lot of technical ways it is. I just I, I like a few good men more. And this is my damn list. So, so I'll I'll say this to defend or just to just agree with you for a second. I'll say the best scene in a movie that Sorkin's ever written is the Nicholson interrogation at the end that that to me, as far as going back and watching for this this podcast, I just I, I've watched him yell. You can't handle the truth so many times as although Cruz is in contempt. We'll save the. You, a few look, good you, men. You, you know, we'll you, save a few good men stuff for when it comes up. <laughs> you use the you use the in memoriam standard for mm-hmm. Andrew Garfield earlier for Social Network. That might be the in memoriam scene for Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, and mm-hmm. Sorkin. And Sorkin. So, not wrong. Not wrong. Okay, let's get to these next few a little quicker. In the Social Network, 
is a social network, a top five Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score. Um, do you have Nine Inch Nails memorabilia behind you in your setup I, there? I, 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 can't, I can't say I have any merch, though. I, I definitely must have owned an album or two at some point in my uh-huh. uh, growing up alternative rock phase. Uh, but, should note they won the Oscar for this. So uh, the, them and Sorkin won for screenplay and then they won for score. The list is kind of small, so I think we're going to have similar lists, but also like Sorkin, they're going to be in different orders potentially. Yep. I think, uh, look, for me, this is this is my number one of their me scores. Too. It's, it's what put them on the map. It's fantastic. Even uh, even just tossing it on now, a decade later, it's it's remarkable how much it grips you, even from the first scenes. It's it's fantastic work. And as I said earlier, it's almost it's almost game changing work in the way that we think about the composition of music and American film. It's it's absolutely great and is my number one. Mine too. And I, I went to Boston uh, for a little vacation last week. And as my girlfriend and I were walking around uh, Cambridge, all I could hear while like not actually going and listening to the score on Spotify was those strings being played. And then while I was walking down uh, the street that holds the that where the Phoenix is located, I heard the scene while he's inventing face smash. Um, while he's blogging, like I heard that music and I heard the the music over the at at the regatta, man. Um, that that score is incredible. What's the other four? Does anything come close? I should say to making it and not and not yeah to not being one. Well, no, to, to being number one. Like, did that? Is it yeah, a actually, one and then a distant second, or was anything close to being number one? I think that my number two might actually be a hair better score. But it has a third composer mm-hmm. who who adds an element to it that Reznor and Ross, I don't think, are capable of doing. And that's the score to soul. Maybe the same number two. And I think John Batiste, the jazz numbers that he's responsible for in that are are integral to everything that's happening with the soundscape in that movie. And the soundscape in that movie is amazing. Uh, but I just I. I I don't know how to parse exactly what Reznor and Ross bring versus what Batiste brings, but it seems to me that we're ranking Reznor and Ross movies and Batiste is such an integral element to what works there that it, it, it doesn't make sense to me to give them extra credit for his contributions. I think it's telling that when they won the Oscar for soul for score, that Batiste gave the speech. Now it might be that Reznor and Ross had already won and wanted to give Batiste the opportunity to speak, but the things about that score I enjoy the most are, I at least believe to be responsible uh, from John Batiste. So um, number three, girl with the dragon tattoo. I do not have it on my list again, need to revisit it probably. So we're going to have some differences on this list. For me, it, it's actually, it's, it's a very similar score to the social network, but a score is not necessarily only the thing that you might listen to on Spotify. It's also how it intersects with the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's best about Reznor and Ross is they may fail the John Williams test where I'm going to go listen to it you know, on, <laughs> on my iPhone when this is over. Um, but it really fits the tone and the feel of the movie and the, the tone of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is so specific. And I think that score is really integral to getting it there. Um, that reasoning is why I have a different movie on my list. And I'll like, it'll be coming up in a second. My number three is waves. Um, my, num- my number four, 
yeah, I, I I'll say very little about it because not a lot of people saw it. It's available on Hulu. Please, everybody go watch Waves. Uh, it stars Sterling K. Brown. And I'm blanking on uh, the kid who's also in Charlotte Chicago. Seven is Fred Hampton. Um it's Kelvin Harrison. Kelvin Harrison Jr. Yes, uh, it's it's full of all those A twenty four people too. Like yes, Edges is in there, and it's. I'll say I, a a quick personal wave story. I went to a like an event for Waves, and there was a the direct the writer director was there. Um, Trey Edward Schultz, Kelvin Harrison was there. Renee Lee's Goldsberry from Hamilton, who's also in that movie, was there, and uh, Alexa Demi, who's I think best known for Euphoria, were all there. Mm-hmm. And the, the passion for how they spoke about this movie. And frankly, the soundscape of this movie too has always stuck with me. And I know it's, it, it's a, it's a story that is very integrally about a black family from a white filmmaker, which mm-hmm. is something that, you know, the hot take culture is a difficult thing to do, but to hear all of the performers talk about the way Schultz handled that issue and how he worked with the actors and crafting, not just the the writing, but even their basic reactions to things. It, it just seems to me that to the to the extent we can have people making films about things that aren't necessarily personal to them, it's a great example of how successful that can be. Bingo! I echo everything you just said. And this is someone I'm coming. I'm someone who did not like it comes at night while. I think watching it during the pandemic was a very different experience um, <laughs> when I rewatched it during the pandemic, I should say. Um, but uh, yeah, I waves uh, was my number one of that year until more heavy hitters started to show up toward the end of the year. It is a very good movie and I highly encourage it. Your number four is Mank. Okay. Also, I, not I, on my I, list. Don't, I don't have a lot to say. It's, it's the same sort of thing. It's very, very well structured. It fits mm-hmm. the movie well. It, it plays around with with the soundscape in this way, sort of echoing elder film. Also, it's good stuff. My number four is mid nineties. Uh, Jonah Hill's Great directorial movie. debut, and just as somebody who grew up in the mid nineties, it spoke to my soul. Another movie by the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Um, number five. I don't think you're going to have on your list. Uh, mine on your list. But go ahead. Well, that that uh, sorry, uh, Waves was my four and Mank was my five. I got a little. Uh, okay, so your three was Dragon. Okay, my bad. Uh, my number five is Gone Girl. To where you said the score, how it's used in the film, the climax of that movie, which weirdly happens in the so there's two, uh, no pun intended, by the way. Um, the one in the middle where he opens the garage and the distorted score comes in, and you're feeling the agony through the music that Affleck is feeling um, then mixed over the very next moment after a fa- if it jumps to black and then I'm I've never been happier now that I'm dead and you hear Amy say all of the everything she's done over the the score and then the ending with Neil Patrick Harris that um, is happens and women be shopping. Um, uh, that's that's the extent that I'll say about that movie. Uh, I think the score is the same way that you said it was used well for Dragon Tattoo. It's well used the exact same way in my, for me at least, in uh, in Gone Girl. Hey, you know what? Settle an argument for us. I say it's time to start making money from the Facebook, but Mark doesn't want to advertise you. Who's right? Um, neither of you yet. 
The Facebook is cool. That's what it's got going for it. Yeah. You don't want to ruin it with ads because ads aren't cool. Exactly. It's like you're throwing the greatest party on campus and someone's saying it's got to be over by 11. That's exactly right. You don't even know what the thing is yet. That's exactly right. How big it can get, how far it can go. This is no time to take your chips down. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? You? A billion dollars. That shut everybody up. Next up is the Social Network a top five biopic. I'll just ask one question before we give our list. Does it matter to you with biopics how true the story is? The the short answer is no. Okay. It's a little it's a and I know it, I, I know it does to you. Uh, mm-hmm. And and this this is perhaps going to explain some of the discrepancies in mm-hmm. in our lists here. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. I, I'm watching fiction. If I want a documentary, I'll I'll watch a documentary. I I, I think it's okay to use the broad arcs of a real person's life to venture in a different thematic or storytelling direction. And I think that's what a lot of great biopics do that are not necessarily about the individual in the movie, but they're about an idea inspired by the individual or a movement or whatever it may be. Um, and, And frankly, most biopics tend to exist in a realm between fact and fiction. They almost become closer to allegory or mythology than they do to accurate blow by blow real life accounts because real life is is kind of fucking boring sometimes (laughs) so heightening it up and emphasizing certain character traits tends to make storytelling more interesting so i'm gonna assume remember the titans isn't on your list it is not on my list okay so remember the titans is like 10 percent accurate like they won that championship game by 40 points Part of the reason they were so dominant is because they had black people on their team and had an athletic advantage over the other white schools in the conference that also like had black people on their teams that just there wasn't an emphasis on it as uh, T.C. Williams did. Um, Yeah, that movie is not accurate at all. That movie, I agree with you on where it's fiction. They're telling a story. It, It doesn't necessarily matter. This is. The general idea is more important where I struggle is where the narrative about the movie or or from the movie, I should say, becomes the story and the social network. A lot of people think this is how Facebook started. Um, I don't know. In certain cases, it it ruins it for me. And you'll see through my list where being able to accept that this is fiction and while it's not the actual story, I'm able to enjoy it as well. I'll just say The Social Network is not one of my top five biopics. It's also not on my top five list. So what are your top five? Go five to one. Five to one. And uh, boy, this this could change a million times mm-hmm. if, I, if I did this over again. But for fifth place, we're going to go Ed Wood, which is also, I assume we'll do a Tim Burton movie someday. My favorite Tim Burton movie, mm-hmm. um, the the sort of quasi biopic of the notoriously shitty uh, B really D movie director. Uh, <laughs> my number four is Malcolm X, which is, I think really over the past year and a half or so uh, elevated its status in the pop culture and elevated its status as, you know, a great biopic of our times, but obviously it, it's probably Denzel's best performance. It's, it's fantastic. Um, it's my number one. Yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah. My th- three. We're gonna uh, this. Maybe I'm I'm gonna put on my pretentious art film nerd cap for a minute here and put Capote. <laughs> okay. As my. I love the Hoffman three. performance. I didn't have it as mine, but I, that performance is really good. 
it's a really good performance. It, for me, it's a it, it's a very captivating story, and in part because there's also a, a much much worse in Cold Blood Truman Capote movie that came out about a year mm-hmm. later with Daniel Craig. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it, it's just in some ways that movie almost stands out to me because you have like a perfect diverging view of how you can get it so right and how you can get it so wrong, despite having very, very talented people involved in both projects. Uh, My number two is Amadeus, which is like 0% accurate, but that movie is incredibly fun (laughs) and incredibly compelling. Uh, And my number one is totally divorced from reality. uh, And that's Raging Bull, which is, Oh yeah. Which is, uh, probably the greatest sports movie ever. I, I don't know if it's my favorite yeah. Scorsese movie. I'm sure we'll discuss that very soon. But uh, Raging Bull is an absolute masterpiece of character drama. So similar to you, my five could change and probably have specifically Amadeus and Raging Bull. Um, on a different day, they would crack my top five. But I have four others. Obviously, Malcolm X being my number one. I'll actually go from one to five from my list. Now, the story of Abraham Lincoln uh, not the vampire hunter, but the reg- real story of Abraham Lincoln. While history will tell you that Spielberg's movie is not as accurate as it uh, portrays it, uh, I have one voice in my head, obviously, because we never heard Abraham Lincoln's voice when I think of Abraham Lincoln. And every time I've read the Gettysburg Address since Lincoln came out, it's been with Daniel Day Lewis's voice. And I'm giving Daniel Day Lewis a lot of credit for that performance by giving it my number two because he literally brought a person that's been on the $5 bill my whole life to life. And that is an accomplishment in its own. Um, the Wolf of Wall Street, you want to talk about accurate, the, that book, the finding out that, like I saw the movie first and then I read the book uh, right before the pandemic actually. And like finding out that that story of the boat sinking during the storm was real. Like the Quaalude scene is real. So much of that movie is actually the book. Well, what do you what do you say? What's well, uh, it's perhaps Jordan Belfort's version of what's of what's real. But that's the point. Not. Like they're he's giving his perspective. It's it's very maybe this is better than an adaptation of the book. The point is like that shit happened, and like the creative liberties more just might be like yeah, let's heighten this up. This is real. This is what it might look like to be on Quaaludes. If if Leonardo DiCaprio wanted to fall downstairs without being able to walk. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, my number three. Um, Moneyball is my number four. And Moneyball, for two of us being baseball fans, like you're going to do a movie about the 2002 Athletics, not mention Miguel Tejada, who won the MVP that year, have a mini cameo of Barry Zito. I think it's vice versa of Barry Zito, who won the Cy Young that year. You would think that they gave Scott Hatterberg a first base glove and all of a sudden they won 20 games in a row. Yes. It's like, no, there, there's like so many other things fell in line and a, a shift in philosophy changed, which I don't think the movie uh, necessarily gets. However, you're chomping at the bit. What would you like to say I, I, about the, this movie? The only reason I'm chomping at the bit, and I, I like the movie, I think it's great fun. I think it's very rewatchable, is you're the one who talked about in- integrity and truthiness yeah. of the storytelling mattering. That, that's what people think. Buddy ball is they think yeah. it's the fucking bad news bears winning 20 games in a row because because Billy Bean created on base percentage as though they the Dodgers in the 50s weren't using it like that was a team that had three guys who are on Hall of Fame tracks just to the pitching staff mm-hmm. alone. And that's before you touch Tejada, who won the damn MVP or Eric Chavez or any of these 
fantastic players that were no, on that roster. You're but a it's lawyer. Just, it's, you're, it's, you're a lawyer. It's manipulative. It, it's convinced creating, me. It's creating a, a remember the Titans. To take your example, it's it's remember the Titans, Ising, a far more complex real life picture of what mm-hmm. team building looks like. And I'm totally fine with Moneyball being on a biopic list when it's Oh no, no, you because I like me. it and it's fun, but it is not an accurate movie. I agree. No, you convinced me. I have to be consistent. Amadeus is now my number four. Either Amadeus yes. or Raging Bull is now my number four. I love Moneyball though. It's when it's we get to baseball movies, like the movie and then the book are borderline life changing for me. And it, it's allowed me to have friendships with one Bernard Odrowski uh, that I wouldn't have had had I not tried <laughs> to open my mind a little more to a different way of viewing baseball. Uh, and then my number five might end my friendship with Bernard Odrowski, um, American Sniper. This is the movie that let me know Bradley Cooper has a future as like one of the better actors that will exist going forward. And while like Silver Linings Playbook, I like and American Hustle, I, I, it, it happened. Um, American Sniper, him bringing Chris Kyle to life while then doing a little research on Chris Kyle after is a little unfortunate. Um, I, I see the conflict and then I see the PTSD that Kyle goes through and like say what you want about the guy. Like what happened to him after is is heartbreaking. I'll say this. I I actually don't hate American Sniper. I hate what American Sniper has become, which is mm-hmm. this weird political football on the right that radically misreads a movie that ends with the war hero weeping on the phone to his wife back home, saying mm-hmm. he's done with fighting, wants to go home, running away in defeat from the rooftop, throwing down his gun on an Iraqi street and getting on a helicopter to go home only to be brutally murdered by someone suffering from PTSD. Mm. The point of that movie is that war is fucking hell. Yes. And we do a horrible job taking care of the people who go out there and fight. And it's been utterly perverted in such a gross, vile way that I, I, I don't even, I don't know how to talk about that movie without the perversion entering it. But I think the movie itself is, is quite good. Uh, I, not all that accurate. And uh, a little <laughs> plug here. Uh just last week, I published an article on the invention of dreams about how Ted Lasso is the first great story of the Joe Biden era. And in mm. that, I talk about how American Sniper is sort of one of the iconic movies of the Obama era. Interesting. Check that out. Invention of dreams dot com. The... OK, it check is. it out. Um, OK, this is one where I'm going to turn to you for the authority on this. Is the social network a top five courtroom legal drama? OK, uh, the quick answer is yes, but. Okay. Uh, I even like it better than some of the movies that I'm about to rank ahead of it here because its focus is broader than just the courtroom. And I think for a courtroom drama, it's got to have the feel. It has to have the confrontation between the lawyers. It has to have it has to have like the big moment of cross-examination. It almost feels so integral to what you expect of a legal drama. Mm-hmm. And this is quite literally stealing the actual words from depositions in some cases. But the conflict is almost removed from the courtroom drama in a lot of ways. The lawyers are almost dealing with it at a at an edited level, as opposed to the more inside baseball version that we <laughs> that we see in the film. But uh, it, it does make it for me. It's my fourth place courtroom legal drama. Might as well. Might as well. Um, specifically for like, while I agree with what you said, there there's just one other thing I'll add. The 
the back and forth of when the Winklevi are trying to make their case and then the back and forth of reading the emails um, while seeing those emails happen in real life. I guess that's more of a direction choice and the editing being more impressive, but the drama of the case being made against Mark Zuckerberg um, then also, I mean, punched home at the end with the case being made against him for Eduardo. Um, I'm then invested in the outcome of both cases, uh, which at least the courtroom being an interesting way, because I never went to trial, but I'm able to at least put this in my top five for sure. Uh, as a lawyer, did Mark Zuckerberg steal the Facebook? Oh, God, I don't know. But, you know, like okay. you, raise, <laughs> you, you raise an interesting point about the, the depositions, because mm -hmm. the depositions in this movie are really compelling and exciting. And in real life, depositions are fucking boring. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone is prepped like crazy. It's not interesting when someone has to mark an exhibit and show it to someone. It's this incredibly awkward, horrible process of like, I'm going to show you this seven page document and we're going to mark it as exhibit 511. I'm going to pass a copy to each counsel at the table and I'm going to give it to the court reporter. Court reporter, do you have that it's 511? And then you give it to the witness and then they take like four minutes looking at it as though they've never seen it before. It's horrible. Yeah. And the only movie, it's one of my runners up. I, I really thought hard about taking it that actually captures how profoundly undramatic the practice of law actually is, is Dark Waters. With oh, Ruffalo. yeah. Yeah. And there are these, they're, they're for me, we're amazing for most people. I think we're probably kind of boring of him, like thumping around with papers, trying to figure out the right thing to give the person he was asking questions to, to figure out how they were, you know, doing all the pollution that was making the locals sick. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the closest thing I've ever seen to what it's actually like. The social network is, is just not what, yeah. <laughs> what lawyering is like. Uh, um, but it's, it sure makes it seem a lot more fun than that. It really is. So then do your, do your one, two, three before, I guess do your, do your five before, cause we both have it at number four. So your number one through three of uh, my, the, the top five courtroom legal dramas. My number one uh, is perhaps not a drama, but it's my cousin Vinny. Okay. Which is hilarious. The cross-examinations are actually accurate and how cross-examination should be done. In fact, I had a professor in law school who used my cousin Vinny as an example of how you should learn to cross-examine a witness. Uh, okay. Uh, I think this conversation I've had with you and that's why I, I, my cousin Vinny is also my number one. So it, it's great. And it's hilarious and it holds up wonderfully. And Marissa Tomei is amazing. Mm -hmm. It's just a fantastic movie. Uh, my number two is 12 angry men. My number three. Right uh, uh -huh. it's, <laughs> it's, collection. <laughs> it's great. It, it captures a, a really important essence of, the American legal system and the difficulty that people go through in rendering a verdict, the weight that that, that, that carries the, it's really, it's, it's an impressively humane story. Mm -hmm. Number three, unsurprisingly is a few good men. My number three, uh, my number two, my number two, I have it a, a hair above 12 angry men. Uh, so yeah, we, we match on our top four. So the top five, or I guess we're going a little off the grid. What's your number five? Well, you're five because mine, you're not going to say. So uh, let's hear it. Let's, pro let's probably hear a correct choice. My number, my number five. five is is The Verdict, which is oh, yeah. my, yeah, my favorite Paul Newman performance about a you know drunk alcoholic lawyer who you know takes that last case to sort of restore his humanity. But it's it. It has the sort of byline of a shitty, uplifting movie, and in reality, is a 
it's just a really touching, well-acted, almost small-scale story. It's good stuff. So the verdict is probably the correct choice. Um, there are a hundred other movies that should be on there, but these are our lists. That's one thing we want to like drive home is this list is specific to you, what you like, what you want. And last year, or I should no earlier this year, for some reason, I rewatched and then could not stop rewatching Law Abiding Citizen, admitting it's it's not accurate at all. I literally went to my group chat with three to one former lawyer and two lawyers, Oz, John Macri and Yash. This isn't real, right? This this couldn't happen. And you guys are like, yeah, it's stupid, but like it's entertaining. I'm not going to say like faulty for being so entertained by that movie from the moment he kidnaps Darby to the reveal that he has the reveal, I'll say, um, is incredible drama. And whether it's real or not, I don't care. I, I want it to be. And as a result, it's the complete opposite philosophy with biopics. I am here for Jamie Foxx. Uh, re- Jamie Foxx basically getting Gerard Butler to quote uh, a few good men. It's not what you know. It's what you can prove in court. <laughs> uh, Law abiding citizen. It's 90 I, minutes, too, which is how I want all of my movies to be. It, it's, it is pleasant. Also, yes. that. And he went to the character, the Jamie Foxx character, went to Florida Law. Exactly. Like this, is the fu- this is your future. So. You're all three of you, <laughs> no, your if, futures. If, 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 I want my future to be Michael Clayton as Florida Law. Ah, okay, which, fair enough. Another movie which, should be on my list before. It should. I didn't quite think of it as a, really a court drama, movie, but it, yeah. it's more like a conspiracy thriller, but that, that movie is really good, too. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Tell me this isn't about me getting into the Phoenix. I knew you did it. You planted that story about the chicken. I didn't plant the story about the chicken. What's he talking about? You had me accused of animal cruelty. Seriously, what the hell's the chicken? And I'll bet what you hated the most is that they identified me as a co-founder of Facebook, which I am. You better lawyer up, asshole, because I'm not coming back for 30%. I'm coming back for everything. So three more categories. Is the social network a top five best picture snub? Now... What do you define as a snub? So I think a best picture snub, I think the way the way that makes sense to think about it is a movie, obviously, that was nominated and didn't win, but also a movie that could realistically have won. So I may I may have liked District 9 better than The Hurt Locker. I, I, don't, I don't even feel that way, but just to pick an example. District 9 would not and could not have won. It wasn't a serious mm-hmm. contender. It was like the... 10th movie of the 10 movies that were nominated that year. And I think it's it's important to keep in mind the sort of narratives and momentum of the movies. We're not talking about the movie I like the most that was nominated. We're talking about credible movies that sh- could have won in real time and should have won with some historical perspective. So the top, the, the, the categories this year, this is the first year the Oscars went to 10 Best Picture nominees. Uh, the Social Network is one of eight, um, had one, the 
uh, best picture, best uh, drama um, at the Golden Globes. And then the other movies are Toy Story 3, True Grit, Winter's Bone, The Kids Are All Right, Inception, The Fighter, Black Swan, 127 Hours, and then the winner, which was The King's Speech. Um, I This is on my list, I will say. It's not my number one, though. So let's go from... Let's go one through five, because I think we do have the same number one. Then it, with the concept being it had a chance to win Best Picture, probably in a world should have won and then lost to something that shouldn't have won, which is why, Oz, your number one Best Picture snub of all time is. It's very easily, very comfortably Brokeback Mountain. Yes, the, mine too. The movie that defeated it, Crash, is not only the perhaps the worst movie to win best picture. It might be the worst movie ever nominated for best picture. I, I am at a loss for any particular merits in that movie, aside from maybe Tondi Newton's performance, but uh, there's just, there's nothing there for me. That's good. Meanwhile, Brokeback Mountain is a profoundly important movie in a lot of ways. For me, someone who, as I mentioned earlier, was raised extraordinarily Catholic. There, there are, uh, a Catholic school, Catholic high school, Catholic college, there are uh, certain views about homosexuality that get uh, impressed upon you at a young age. And for me, Brokeback Mountain was something that helped improve me as a person. Mm. I, it, it humanized for me a story in a way that had either been, you know, I'd obviously seen movies like The Birdcage and stuff like that, but it's, you know, homosexual love is treated in almost a farcical way in so many of those movies. And it dovetails with a lot of my movement into watching, you know, European cinema and French new wave stuff and things like that. But for me, Brokeback Mountain is a movie I look at that, that quite frankly made me a better person. It made me a more open-minded and accepting person. And it, it is masterfully made profoundly well acted. It is one of the most important movies of the last 50 years. And the fact that it lost to a, piece of shit like crash <laughs> is a blight that the academy will never be able to erase yeah brokeback mountain may end up on our list one day so i i i want to hold some other thoughts but i'll just i'll say this is largely a commentary on how much further the academy had to go in diversifying its voting body when this movie won and then like Almost a little more than a decade later, Moonlight wins and it's progress. It's not, it's not done, but it was the signal that some change needs to happen. And thankfully, some of that change started to happen after this movie. Um, where so what's your go through your list? Two through five. So my number two is Goodfellas. It lost to a sort of stodgy run of the mill period movie in Dances with Wolves, which is perfectly fine. It, it, it's just you know that the avatar prequel dances with wolves mm -hmm. this is um, my number four goodfellas yeah goodfellas is great it's masterful it it evolved the genre which is one of the most well rewarded by the academy and and sort of almost overpraised throughout the history of hollywood is is the gangster movie and goodfellas managed to evolve the formula of the gangster movie in a profound way while being incredibly well acted and just uh, it, it, is, it is a titanic feat of filmmaking prowess and to lose to Dances with Wolves. I mean, there are all sorts of horrible quotes of Academy voters who are like, oh, it was too violent. So I didn't want to watch it. Uh, that <laughs> that turned my stomach today. But that Goodfellas is one of the greatest movies ever made. And Dances with Wolves is not. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. My number but, four as well. And this is a category that will come up in a couple of weeks as well when we talk about Goodfellas in, in depth. So uh, my number three is Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. Also on my, my number five. Which uh, it's a brilliant war film. It lost to a sort of lighter. I, I actually like Shakespeare in Love. I think it's a good movie, but it's not it's not an important movie. It's not a movie that quite literally changed the things we look for in war cinema realism was not such an aspirational goal before saving private ryan changed the game there's no there's no black hawk down there's no hacksaw ridge to take a movie from earlier today without saving private ryan and i think it's just a a critically important movie even if it does lean a little too much into the sort of most mayorum hoary cliches of of greatest generation stuff it's a it's a masterful film uh and my Fifth place is uh, this one may may surprise. It's also relevant to upcoming episodes. Uh, the runner up in 1981 was Chariots of Fire, which mm. is boring. It's fine. I, I, I ran cross country and track in college. So if there's someone who should be singing the praises of Chariots of Fire, it's me. It's boring. It's overlong. It is the sort of old white guy cinema at its, I don't even know if it's finest, at its most and that defeated Raiders of the Lost Ark, which for my money, we'll discuss it soon, mm-hmm. uh, m- might be the greatest action adventure movie ever made. It might be. It's just it's wonderful. I, I adore it. Uh, it's that series is why I love movies the way I do. I, I have the last crusade cup <laughs> sitting behind me right now. Uh, I just I I adore Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think that it should have won. I think that it is a better movie by far than Chariots of Fire and a horrible snub. Okay. And you're where did you have did you have the social network on your list? I'm sorry. I I, I have social network four. Four. Okay. I think I so skipped saying that. I'm sorry. I had social we had no. We have we have four crossovers. Um, I have the social network. Let me just get this out the way. We I have. Goodfellas and Saving Private Ryan as my four and five, losing to Dances with Wolves and Shakespeare in Love. Crash and Brokeback Mountain being my number one. My number three, anybody that knows me knows that Get Out to me is one of the more important movies of the 2010s. And one of the more mind-blowing experiences with the movie that I dismissed when I first saw the trailer and a Rotten Tomato score of 100 got me to go see it. And it's I will save the rest of my thoughts for when we do that movie. But I, losing to the fish fucking movie is just it, unacceptable. But in a different world where I wasn't serious, uh, it's more inexcusable than Crash vs. Bushback Mountain. There, I said it again. Not serious. Don't come after me. But that's how bad I think of a snub that is. Anyway, um, King Speech Social Network this year um, is my number two. Because can I just can I read you Tom Hooper, who won for best director and then won best picture? Can I read you his filmography after this movie? So we can't, we can't talk about the stuff before. That's good. No, no, no. no so damn United since he won the one best director and then the King's Speech won best picture, he did Les Miserables, um, an extremely long like it's fine for a, a lot of people made a big deal that those are actually singing. Yeah, it wasn't that good, but OK. Um, <laughs> the Danish Girl in 2015. Oof. Not what you That's want. A rough. That's a rough not one. what you want by 2015 standards and definitely not what you want by 2021 standards. <laughs> and then two years ago, he did a, a low budget movie called Cats that ended up being one of the 
biggest flops of all time comparison box office to budget. Um, that's what the best director of 2010 that directed the movie that beat David Fincher, Aaron Sorkin in the social. Well, I guess not Sorkin, but uh, defeated the social network in 2010. That's uh, the legacy of that win. I'll say this. I, I watch like 300 movies a year and mm-hmm. it's part like for me, it's important that I finish every movie that I start, even if it <laughs> takes like a few sittings and I grind it out. Uh-huh. Cats, Cats is one of the only movies in the last like 10 years I have not finished. Shout out to my mom. She's she's a cat lady, which is weird because she's married. But like shout out to my mom who like was crushed by cats, <laughs> loved it so much. And I'm sitting there and this is where my growth of I'm glad it worked for you came into play <laughs> where it was like, mom, I really wanted you to enjoy this movie and seeing you with tissues like this was your movie. And it's, it's why, like, it's rare that a movie has a zero on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, there is a, a there is an audience for every movie. It may not be a big audience, but there, there was an audience for this movie and hearing what she got out of it. And I was like, oh, I got none of that. <laughs> Um, shout out to my mom who loved cat. It was an easy Christmas present the next year. It's like, oh, mom, here, got your cats in Blu-ray and DVD. Here you go. Yours. I, I, I too have real life cats, but it didn't mm-hmm. work for me. So I yeah. will say I'd, I'd rather they release the butthole cut than yes. we do any more Snyder cut stuff. Bingo. <laughs> Sorry, Spencer. Um, <laughs> okay, these last two we can do together because I think they'll, they're going to coincide for me. Um, is this the best movie of the year of 2010 and then the best movie of the decade. Now going through the research, it's toward the top of both lists is what I found. Uh, Rolling Stone had it at number one. Uh, IndieWire had it in the top 10, but not number one. Um, it was in the top 25 uh, usually of, uh, of the decade and of the year consistently one, two or three that year um, is what I found. Now, you, Mr. Siskel, um, where did you have it that year for 2010? So, we'll start there. And I'll go through this quick because there's a lot of movies I'd like to talk about. And I'm going to I'm going to leave out documentaries, even though Restrepo and Exit Through the Gift Shop both came out that year, mm-hmm. which are uh, masterful. But um, it does make my top five. Okay. Uh, there, there are a bunch of movies I thought about. Um, Inception, Scott Pilgrim, Dogtooth, Fish Tank, Let Me In. Even The Town is great fun. Uh, that are sort of on the periphery of my top five, but uh, my it's fourth place for me. Okay, for 2010. Okay, um, so you didn't. You're not going to give like a full top five, but it, I, I will. I will. Four. I will run. I will run you down my top five. My Let fifth place. My fifth place is 127 hours. Where okay, I understand that I I may like that movie more than anyone else. I just thought it was a profound feat of filmmaking to make that story of a dude trapped with his arm trapped under a rock, cutting it off. An, an interesting thing. I love that movie. I'm not like this is a like there's a, a solid nine in this year that I think all could make a list. You know. Yep. So that that's that's my five, my four social network, my three is Black Swan. Okay, Aronofsky. I love Aronofsky. <laughs> my my even when he's bad, I like Aronofsky. My two is uh, a movie we may talk about someday. Uh, Toy Story three. Mm-hmm. My number which, three. Which so, I think okay. is elite level Pixar and my number one probably speaks a lot to my, my movie taste generally. And the fact that I have like the before trilogy sitting uh-huh. behind my head right now, uh, my number one is blue Valentine, which mm-hmm. I find to be uh, utterly heart wrenching, moving, just, just devastating picture of a relationship coming 
to its conclusion. Um, it, it's maybe the best work of Ryan Gosling's career, maybe the best work of Michelle Williams career. It is fantastic. Yes. Um, this will be these categories at the end where we do best of the year, potentially best movie of the decade is where you will see the difference in tastes with me at Oz. Uh, I like every movie you mentioned, by the way, uh, Black Swan. It's my second favorite Aronofsky, Aronofsky behind Mother. So, um, but what what do you say? Oh, I I love Mother. I just, Mother I like, is I, I, I like motherfucker. But that that movie has like the worst cinema score ever. I know, I and yet that like I dig it. You want to talk I about religious it. backgrounds? Once you pick up on, oh, that's what you're doing. <laughs> really, okay. Yeah. Uh, Social Network is my number one of 2010, and it's also my number one of the decade. So I'll just get these ten points out of the way. Um, my number ones for my five for 2010. It goes the Social Network, Inception, Toy Story three. The Town, and then I'm going to give a shout out to Comedy. Uh, the Other Guys came out in 20, I, I know 2010. Me. And a movie that Derek Jeter gets shot is welcome in my top five anytime. Um, anyway, of the decade, does this crack your list? Uh, no. I mean, it no. doesn't. It didn't. It barely cracked my top five for the year. So it's there. It's it's I a figured. strong strong decade there's a, a lot of good stuff that I, i'm sure we'll talk about so i won't i won't spoil the entire list now but it, it's a zero point for me for the decade this is actually appropriate that you don't spoil it because now going forward people if we have a best of the decade candidate um it'll be interesting to see if anything make i'm very curious to see a movie make oz's best of the decade one day it is my number one of the decade though and I, I just go back to all the pieces working together. This is the 2017 Warriors of movies. And <laughs> as a result, it ends up being my number one. Um, okay. We have finished the final review of the social network. What ends up being your score? So for me, uh, and remember, the, these scores are uh, based on movies that we already feel are great. So it's mm -hmm. within the realm of greatness. And for me, the social network ended up with a 26 out of 50. So, you know, roughly the 52nd percentile. And that makes perfect sense. I feel like it is a top half of the sort of list of great movies that we might talk about someday on this pod or that you might talk about generally in your day to day lives. I think it's great. I, I, I have some small quibbles that hold it back from <laughs> the highest tier movies, but that's what we're doing here. We're, we're picking nits over greatness. We're not you know, we're, we're, we're ranking Hall of Famers. We're not talking about, you know, if someone should make the Hall of Fame ballot, we're well past that. So mm -hmm. when we're, we're picking through what the very best movies of all time are, I think it's good. I think it's in the top half of that group, uh, but it misses the upper echelon for me. I agree that with the concept of these are a lot of near perfect movies that we're trying to split hairs and figure out a way for us to rank them. And it's why it makes sense knowing your taste that this is more toward the middle of the Pantheon than it is toward the top. Like my list where the social network gets an 80 out of in the 80th percentile. Cause I have a 40 out of 50 on my list. If you told me this is one of the 20 greatest movies of all time, I'd agree. And I think this is an achievement in filmmaking and, uh, Again, 2017 Warriors. This is one of the more perfect movies I've ever seen. Uh, having said that, Oz, what is your score out of 10? We'll wrap up every episode with this. Of the social network, what is your score out of 10? I'll say one quick thing, which is collectively, we had a, a 66 out of 100 here, which mm -hmm. means between us, we have it in the top third. And I think that that feels right yeah. to me. 
Uh, my score out of 10, and I have quibbles with with grading systems and everything else, because I think that movie, an understanding of a movie needs to be more than that. But look, this is a 10 out of 10 for me. I, I, I have, I don't think a 10 out of 10 is reserved for like the five greatest movies someone has ever seen or any mm-hmm. of that sort of hokum. It's it's a masterful movie in so many ways. We didn't really touch on the on the below the line, the craft stuff here. Mm-hmm. Everything about the filmmaking on display here is off the charts great the sound design and mixing it's it's basically perfect in so many ways uh i have quibbles but it's a 10 out of 10 yeah that i think is the important part of this show is that what we're going to show is a 10 of 10 doesn't necessarily mean perfection and while we may think a movie at its uh, at its peak is in the hall of fame as you mentioned um it doesn't necessarily have to mean that every single thing puts it in the top five. This is how we'll differentiate between the all-time greats. And it's why it should come as a surprise to nobody that this is a 10 out of 10 for me. Uh, but going forward, it's going to be interesting to see what ends up passing it, what ends up uh, being lower than it that I would have thought originally was going to be ahead of it. Um, yeah, this is uh, one of the better movies. I think an appropriate episode one of final review, Mr. Ozrowski. Uh, before we get out of here, do you have anything you'd like to plug? I would. Uh, please come to theinventionofdreams.com to read my work and the work of others. You can follow me on Twitter at OzOnMovies. And uh, you can follow the podcast. There you go. Twitter uh, at Final Review Pod. And there's also a Final Review Pod on Letterboxd. There you go. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Andrew J. Claudio underscore. And if you dug the show, head on over to iTunes and drop a five-star rating and a review. Subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe again. It really helps out the show as we as we kick this thing off. And as always, thank you for listening and tune in next time for another final review. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com